the Silver Voices Project, which allowed for digitization and sharing of this archival audio, was made possible by a grant from the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services, grant number MA 30190681194. Let's try this for volume and see how our voice. Why don't we begin, Miss Gish, with a recollection from you of the very first films that you remember seeing, or fragments of films? Well, we were, I think, in East St. Louis, and my mother had a kind of candy store where we would go in summertime, and uh, she would try to earn our living that way because there was no theater to work in in summertime. And in back of this, there was a door that led into what was known then as a Nickelodeon. And her two daughters uh, were in to be found in there all the time, rather than uh, where they ought to have been, uh, helping Mama <laughs> with the, the dishes and things in the candy shop. We were always watching, and one day, someone came on the screen that looked very familiar, and it was a, a girl we knew from the theater called Gladys Smith. And she was in a film called Lena and the, and the Geese. And we thought, what could have happened to that poor family that they <laughs> have to do this for a living? We must uh, see next time we go to New York if we can get in touch with them and find out why they've come upon evil ways. So the next time we did go to New York, we went down to the Biograph studio and asked for Gladys Smith. And they said no one was there by that name. And we said, oh, yes, we had seen her in this film called uh, Lean and the Geese, they said, oh, you mean little Mary, and out came what they called Mary Pickford, and she was our old friend, so she introduced us to Mr. Griffith, and that's how we happened to come into films. He said, would you like to act in, in a picture, and we said, well, what would we do, and he said, come in and sit here in the audience, and we went in and sat there, mother with us, and the three of us for a few hours and got $15, and that we thought was wonderful. Of course we wanted to work. Were you very close to the camera, Miss Gish? Do you no. think that you could be spotted? In well, the, we didn't know anything film? about the yes. cameras. We'd never been mm. there, and we were very suspicious of it. Mm. You know, they had our odd makeups and only uh, Cooper Hewitt lights. Yes. So everyone around looked as if they'd been dead about three weeks, and they laughed at everything, and we thought they were laughing at us, and it seemed very... Uh, irregular and kind of a mad place. And we wouldn't go there without Mother. I have the feeling that we have the negative in our vaults in Rochester, and we'll have to check through and see if we can't discover what that film was. Whatever that was. Well, I would like to know your very first impressions of Mr. Griffith. What did you think when you saw him? We thought it was Mr. Biograph. Oh, Obviously, he seemed to own the place. We didn't know anything about him, and he kept singing. He had, I think the most impressive thing about Griffith was his voice. He had studied to sing, and uh, it was a very commanding voice. Uh, everyone obeyed it, men, women, children, animals. If you remember the animals he used to use oh, in yes. his films, even they took orders. Yes. Now, you're the, f the first film in which you had an important part, or rather, was this your second film, was An Unseen Enemy? Well, then he asked if we'd like to play a part. Oh, no, first, could we act? <laughs> we drew ourselves up and said, we are from the legitimate theater. He said, but I don't mean reading lines. I want to know if you can act. And we were a little nonplussed with that. We didn't know what acting was if it wasn't reading lines. So he took us upstairs to a rehearsal hall and called out a plot, and we walked through it. And soon he got up and 
took a gun out and started chasing us around, shooting a gun off the <laughs> ceiling. Well, we thought, we knew then we were in a crazy house. And uh, apparently whatever happened satisfied him because we were engaged to come back and play leading roles the next day. Well, we thought $5 for sitting in an audience, this uh, leading role would get a great deal. We got the same amount. You got $5 a day, whatever you did, whether you played a, a great part or nothing. Just like the Comédie Française. Yes. And this was an unseen enemy. I, as I recall, this, this still that we're looking at here, uh, presently uh, a hand is to reach through that hole in the wall brandishing a gun. So yes. You see, those two faces looked very much alike. He couldn't tell which was which. So he put a blue ribbon on my hair and a red ribbon on Dorothy and called us red and blue when he called out directions. And obviously he had written this uh, story overnight thought, what will I do with these two faces? And, and uh, he put them in, in this picture called Unseen Enemy. You see, by that time, he had evolved his technique of films. You can see what he did from 1906 and 7 to 1912 and 13. His way of telling a story in celluloid is still used, and it was evolved during those years. First, he told us that he took it from Shakespeare, the short scenes, and then he thought, well, no, uh, you can go as a man's uh, mind goes. You don't have to even uh, borrow from Shakespeare. You just borrow from the mind, you know. Darting which, here and there. Which, which yes. he did. Yes. Uh, you, uh, and that, I think, is where he uh, got the, fla the idea of the flash. In fact, you know, you, you uh, can be here talking to me, and then suddenly you can be over in Venice. And then yes. Looking at Mark Square or something. You yes. Know, the reviews remark uh, about that technique of flash scenes increasingly from about uh, 1912 on and all through 1913 there too. Yes, yes. How he builds up the excitement by yes. cutting back and forth between two situations. Yes, mostly uh, two. He wrote his stories, but this, this particular story, uh, Unseen Enemy, he uh, was written by Edward Acker. Uh, he, I think, paid five, ten, at the highest, fifteen dollars a story in those days. And remember, he had to have one every day. So, if any came in that were at all plausible, passable, he he bought them. And this one happened to have been written by my friend, whom I still see and hear from, right here in New York. Now, let me see. We've got some other biographs here. Here's uh, a cry for help, Miss Gish in which you're standing at the left there in the costume of a maid with Lionel Barrymore in the center there. Yes, I remember Lionel Barrymore was one of the few actors that came down there and didn't change his name. Most of them, you know, took another name, or uh, preferably no name at all. They didn't want to be found in those films. And they all had different names in England, didn't they? I remember that. Yes, because the companies wouldn't give the names out. They didn't think that was a good idea. They wanted to be famous as the biograph, as uh, whatever the others, uh, Vitagraph and Calum. And soon we were told by people who sold these films that Biograph became the uh, favorite and they would uh, sell them in other countries as Biograph. So when Biograph heard of that, they put their little signature in each scene. You saw a little AB yes. sitting somewhere. In a circle. And that yes. was proof that this was genuine. Yes. And the others that didn't have that were not biographs. Ah. I remember reading about the worldwide demand for biograph films. Yes, some of the early it was. You see, and this was one man. This was the father of films. This was D.W. Griffith, 
who created this demand. And two, the industry knew it because if you rehearsed, as you did, his stories ahead of time, you were sworn to secrecy because if other studios heard of these stories, they would just do them first and, and release them ahead of him. So he came to a point later where he wouldn't rehearse all the story. He just rehearsed part of it with one group and part of it with another so that other, pe other studios wouldn't get to know uh, what he was up to. It was almost like a puzzle of which each separate person held a separate piece. And it yes. was only when they were all assembled, as they were uh -huh. in the final print, because that you could tell what it was. There were uh, spies around uh, saying, what's he doing? And they would try and find out, and then they'd do it and get it out ahead of him. Uh -huh. Or immediately after and trade on the success of that. My goodness, after the birth of a nation, there was such an influx of... of uh, Civil War stories. Yes, that was a time when Biograph began to reissue all these early films, too. And then they were proud to say this was directed by D.W. Griffith, whereas, of course, before there were they no fought credits. him. They knew yes. what they had, and they didn't yes. want him to demand too much money. I imagine. I, I don't know. I hear a few others here. Here you are in, in the Isles of the Wild with uh, Clara McDowell turning her head and looking at you. And here's the grandfather part that you remember, Lionel Barrymore and you and the lady in the mouse. Yes, and that story came about as we were at lunch or sitting around. Someone said that I happened to look as if I wouldn't kill a cockroach. And immediately, Griffith saw a, an idea for a story, and out of it came the lady in the mouse. Instead of a cockroach, he made it a mouse. <laughs> and that's the way stories were written in those days. The chap who made these frame enlargements for us said, uh, oh, you really must look at this negative. There's some enormous close-ups of a mouse. He, he takes up the whole frame on the screen. I'm <laughs> sure that mouse obeyed Griffith. <laughs> Here you are in the mothering heart. This was the big two-reeler. That was an expensive experiment. You see, they thought people wouldn't sit through two reels, that uh, it would hurt their eyes. Griffith knew better. And I think that was one of the first two reels. And I was much too young to play a mother, but it was a great test of acting ability in those days. Could you play old? If you could play old, you were an actress. If you could just do yourself, you were not. It seems to me I remember reading that Mr. Griffith spent about four to five weeks off and on working on The Mothering Heart, doing other productions in between. Of course, that must have been an extraordinary length of time to spend on any one production. I don't remember that. I think he might have spent that time rehearsing, but I should think when he really went to photograph it, he'd do it in two or three days at mm. most. Here's an interesting one. This is um, a woman in the ultimate where you seem to be wearing a, a wig or a bandeau of some sort. Well, we had the same problem <coughs> then that they have in television now. We tried to change our face and bodies and characters because if we used the same one all the time people would soon get tired of it so you were always looking for a new character in a black wig or another one in a blonde long one or your own long hair or dark hair short would this be a wig here miss Kish? no so that would be my wig. own you see you can tell in a way from the color of the hair and, and I like your costume here. Did you provide the costumes yourself? We had one costume? man whose job it was to go down to Grand Street, which is a very poor neighborhood, and into those uh, uh, second-hand places where they sell clothes. He was to go there all the time and pick up bargains uh, in 
any type of costume for men or women. And now and again, when we were looking for something special, we also would go down until one day Blanche Sweet got the measles <laughs> and we weren't allowed to go anymore. We were, weren't allowed to go and, and then those costumes were kept in the wardrobe room and when you were to do a new character, you went in and picked the one you wanted. Well, sometimes mother would add to it or subtract or, uh, or make little things at or home. Sash but you yes. did your own costumes from the uh, available material uh, that was, as I say, bought secondhand. Here's a very interesting one. This is the Madonna of the Storm. Well, you have a child in your lap, as I remarked before. I think this looks like a sketch for Way Down East. Oh, yes, and you see it has a paisley shawl, apropos of what I, I was speaking about. You could always seem to me pick up paisley shawls very cheaply, and the wardrobe was full of paisley shawls, so you <laughs> see many of those used. And you would try to use them in a new way with a different color skirt or something. You, in those days, you tried to make something out of nothing. Could you give us Miss Gish a recollection of Mr. Griffith's direction, a specific instance in one of your films. Do you remember him uh, working to get a particular effect in a biograph film? He usually worked out his effects in the rehearsal. And the, the uh, last members of the company to arrive were the ones that were uh, used for these rehearsals. And then when the picture, when his story was about ready for the camera, he would let the older members that were to play the parts come in and watch the younger ones play. Uh, and then as they sat there and watched the story evolve in front of them, they would get ideas. Then they would get up and rehearse, and the younger ones had the advantage of seeing the more experienced player take over. And that was his school, and there's no better school than that because you had your ideas of the way this character should be played and you did the best you could because there was that chance that you might get it, you know, if you were good enough. And uh, then you saw a more experienced actress come in and what she would do. Then you could see it on the screen and find out. So uh, you learned quickly and absorbed all these. Remember, we had to be articulate without words in the beginning, and yet Certainly we couldn't did. be caught at pantomime. We couldn't do dumb show as it's written. We were more nearly like Commedia dell'arte of Italy that uh, had one of the 36 plots and then they improvised. Well, we did the same thing. We used words all the time. We talked all the time. And later on, these words became so true and were born out of the action. Griffith would have his cutter sit there and take down what we were saying because later on so often those words became the subtitles. The actual subtitles. Isn't they were that, that true. Yes. Mm -hmm. That were just created on the spot. Yes. By you who were, were so imbued with the action and the movie. Uh, yes. yes. And uh, uh, some of his films, a film like Way Down East, he rehearsed day and night for eight weeks. Well now in the theater we rehearse a play three at most four weeks and we're ready for an audience. But we were such craftsmen then that he had a man with a stopwatch at the end of these rehearsals, oh, I should say the last three weeks, so that we as actors knew if we had 10 feet for a scene, if we had 20 feet, we knew exactly what our timing was and that we had to tell that particular part of the story within that space of time or it would be cut out and be left on the cutting room floor. So that we were great craftsmen 
And you notice we come quickly into a scene of those films, quickly out, because in the films, an entrance and an exit isn't as important as it is in the theater. So that we jumped quickly and told our story and jumped out. We didn't waste our, fit, our footage. But all the significant action remains. What remained, yes. and that's why when a film like uh, Broken Blossoms, for instance, uh, that was rehearsed uh, by Carol Dempster, for me, since I was busy oh, having Spanish that. influenza, I, I was uh, ill, and when I came back, I rehearsed with a mask on because everyone was afraid of, of getting Spanish influenza. And uh, we were 18 days making that film, and when it was finished and put together, it was only 200 feet over length. That meant that oh, you just trimmed the beginning and ends of scenes, and you were ready uh, for the final showing, and there were no retakes. Mr. Giff Griffith was that remarkably conscious of uh, tempo then, well, the film itself. The only man, he, he said that thing about a film was timing and tempo <coughs> and that he built on a structure as you build a house or a building or a bridge a good sound solid structure and in a, as the play went on as the story went on it he tried to increase the tempo and increase the interest uh, and and most of his films are that they get to be quite exciting unless something goes wrong as he said I ruined his orphans of the storm because I played the first, the climax of the first part, it was a film in two parts, 12 reels, and the first part was hearing the sister singing on the street, and he said that I played that too intensely and brought it to too high a climax that he couldn't top it at the end of his film, and he always blamed me for uh, spoiling that part of his picture, that he wanted the end to go higher than the uh, end of the first part structurally and I, I see what he means but I, I, I can't agree that uh, that he hasn't been able to, to bring the end of the picture up onto a level but the the effect of the, of the scene where you do hear your sister singing yes. and try to get through her and frantically yes, go out yes. on the balcony is just tremendous he said that was played too high and too intensely that I should have kept it down more and then the end of his picture would have been better <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you remember of uh, Billy Bitzer from the very first and the earliest in the biography. Billy Bitzer was a German and a methodical. We used to call him uh, Eagle Eye because he could photograph things that weren't there. <laughs> His eye of the camera could see things that your eye could not. And because of this, I think they had to have these very young faces in the beginning. For instance, in that... Uh, the film you spoke of just now, The Battle of Elderberry Gulch, we used a baby. And uh, in those days, there were no laws, rules, or regulations about babies. We got one from the orphan asylum near our studio and uh, used it and found that we had to retake it. And we sent back and said, won't you please send us a young-looking baby? It happened to be one of those little babies with lots of wrinkles, and it looked like an old man. It didn't look like a baby. <laughs> of course, Bitzer got every wrinkle in that baby's face, mm. and it, it, it looked like a shriveled old, old man. He was meticulous. He did mostly when Griffith would come in and say, I want this effect, Billy, Billy would say, it, you can't do it. It's impossible. The minute he said impossible, Griffith made him do it, and he'd do it. 
Every time. Yes. When, and, and he did do the impossible. There's a scene in Intolerance where you see a chariot on the wall of Babylon driving along. Oh, yeah. And then a, a, a mile in the distance, or at least half a mile in the distance, you see other action going on. And Bitzer gets a focus in the foreground and also a half mile away. Now, I don't know how he does thing, did uh, things like double that. Double exposure, do you think? No. No, you can do no. And it. No. <coughs> uh, <coughs> he was for clarity, uh, superior to any other cameraman. But it was Griffith's imagination that brought about uh, the camera effects. And it was uh, Billy's German um, meticulousness that followed it out that uh, brought about the ultimate results. But one without the other. With, uh, Billy without Griffith to tell him would never have done anything. And, and, and Griffith had to have someone that could do, as uh, I say, the impossible, and that was Billy. Uh, they worked the beautifully together. Also, yes. we worked, we, we uh, had our laboratory right there. Uh, Joella handled the film, and many times I sat all night in the laboratory to watch. I knew film, too. I knew how uh, long my, uh, the negative should be left in the soup, and also how much uh, how, how dark or how light I wanted my print and I used to sit there to see that they wouldn't get it too light or too dark for the effect that we were after. Oh, yes. We were, we were really good craftsmen. Did Mr. Griffith at this time ever trace a characterization through the entire picture for you, Miss Gish, before filming began? No, I think uh, you found that. Now, uh, once, uh, an example of that, we were in London and we were on the street and we saw a girl walking ahead of us with the most extraordinary walk and we both at the same time caught it and we followed her for blocks. And if you saw Hearts of the World and you saw my sister's characterization of the, the little, little disturber, disturber yes. that was the walk. That was the girl we found. Yes. And we both came back and gave it to Dorothy. You would do that if you would get a walk, if you would get uh, a gesture. Remember, we had to use all these. You were surprised. You were sad. You in every mm. picture. You were constantly looking for new ways to. Well, I ended going to the insane asylums for new ways of surprise. And, and, and what film were you working on at this time when you went to the insane asylum? I was working in uh, California with uh, Labo Aim and uh, no. Oh yes, it was after. Uh, I was using epilepsy in uh, the White Sister. You use, oh, yes. uh, you know, any any uh, new kind of uh, form of expression. Uh, for instance, when we were in London during the war, we were given orders to go down to Victoria Station every day we were not working and watch the soldiers leaving for the front and say bidding goodbye to their families and also being brought in wounded and being met by the families because Griffith said you will see emotion with the lid off now it's a great chance for you to study and learn to be good actresses because these people are usually not showing their emotion but these are war times extraordinary times and you'll see things you, you uh, uh, couldn't see at uh, other periods in history you must watch and go there and uh, even if it does seem cruel it's not cruel because you're in a business that must know all these things. And then, of course, when we were set up front in France, we had to watch the wounded, and uh, we saw things that's better not to talk about.
You know, let's see, Miss Gish. I wanted to ask you your impressions upon seeing a completed film for the first time. When would this have been? Would this have been in the projection room at Biograph or in a regular theater? Oh, I had to help cut. Uh, I was responsible for my scenes. I had, if we took them uh, later on, of course, at first, yes. we only took one scene one time. The Birth of a Nation had one negative because we didn't have the money to take a, a scene twice. Uh, but later on, when we could take scenes a uh, second time or a third, uh, it was up to me to go in there and uh, figure out which was the best for the action needed. And very often I had to help with the cutting of a film. I, had to, I sat in all through the reels of in, uh, the cutting of Intolerance, for instance. Well, then you saw the whole thing. Oh, uh, we, had, we had to work on it, you know. Yes. Uh, we worked on the story in the beginning to add what we could to our parts, to any parts, to, uh, you know, ideas. We naturally uh, acted in the film. We uh, helped with, uh, sometimes, as I told you, with yes. the developing and printing by getting it just uh, the right tone. We also helped with the cutting. We, when it was over, very often, later on, worked as hard to sell our picture as we did in the making of it. Uh, that is, we would come east. I remember we got here once. I got here with a film, and there were no billboards left to advertise my film, and I had to go to the man who owned the billboards to get a few, and he gave me some that belonged to David Belasco. <laughs> but we we had to be expert in all line uh, lines of uh, knowing what to do from the very beginning to the end of a picture. You certainly must have. What was the name of Mr. Griffiths Cutter? Was that Jimmy Smith? Jimmy Smith. Yes. Yes. He's still in California. Now let me see. I think you wanted to say something about the birth of a nation. You were telling me about the length of time in which it was made, weren't you, and the, and the total cost of the production? Well, the birth of a nation was nine weeks altogether being made. Yes. Uh, I worked three weeks of that. It cost a little over $60,000 to make, and it made over $100 million. This was told me by Mr. Aiken, there were two men who helped raise money for the birth of a nation, Roy and Harry Aiken. And when I heard him on television admitting that it had made $50 million, I thought, well, that's brave of him because there were taxes in those days. Yes. And later on I saw him and I said, well, it was generous and brave of you to admit the birth of a nation made $50 million, but you know well enough it made much more than that. He said, oh, it made way over $100 million, but I can't say that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, <laughs> you, I suppose, uh, I don't know what uh, laws are. Tax collector taxes, be around the next know. day. <laughs> and there was no way of, of tracing how much that made. There were 28 roadshow companies of that out, uh, that picture out traveling through America for two yeah. years. Yeah. That is as if you had uh, 28 companies of uh, My Fair Lady out, which, uh, as you know, yeah. making around $60,000 a week. Well, figure 28 companies for two years doing that. Now, that's before it ever went into a film uh, theater. And I remember Louis V. Mayer thanking me for starting him on his way to fortune. He said that when he heard he could get the New England rights or rights for some of the states of New England of the birth of a nation that he 
pawned and sold everything he owned, including his wife's wedding ring, to get enough money to put down to get that. And that's what started him. You see, it, it, it made everyone in the film. It, it ruined the film industry because up until that time, we were struggling along with a new art form. We uh, knew its power and accepted the responsibility of that power. But it hadn't become big business. When something costs 60000 and makes over $100 million, it's like steel or General Motors. This is big business. Big business moved in and started pushing the artists around. And Griffith only made the birth of a nation because he felt the truth of the war between the states had never been told in the history books. He, he was from Kentucky. His father was a colonel in the Confederate Army, and he had heard what went on in that war, and he said that it was uh, not faithfully and truthfully recorded in history books. So he didn't have the complete courage to make his own story. He bought from Thomas Dixon a novel called Klansman, but he changed it so that when Thomas Dixon saw this, he said, why, this is not my book, this is not my story. Why, you could even call it by another name. Griffith jumped at that and said, oh, do you mind, Mr. Dixon, may we call it the birth of a nation? And he said, certainly, because it's not the Klansman. And he took this story, this picture, first to the White House when President Wilson was there. Now, as you know, President Wilson was a college professor. He taught Civil War in the schools. He knew this history backwards. And after he saw this film, he said, it's like writing history with lightning. Now, if it had been inaccurate, he would have been the first to know. So I have lived now long enough to know what Griffith meant. In those days, I thought he was a strange man saying history wasn't told truthfully in books and school books. Now I know I've lived through a half century uh, almost of, of history that I could uh, see happening. And I don't believe the truth told in the books either. <laughs> so uh, here was a man that knew his medium. He, he said on celluloid uh, what he had to say. Uh, he he uh, couldn't answer all his critics when they took exception to the birth of a nation and said that he did not treat colored people uh, well. It hurt his feelings because he said he loved colored people. They had raised him. He understood them as a white. Other white people did not understand them, and I think this must be true because they were his friends all his life. I believe when he died, the woman that played in The Birth of a Nation was the only one at his deathbed. But when they oh, said... Oh, really, Miss Gage? Yes, I think so. Mm. When he said uh, that uh, the critics said he didn't uh, treat them right, he couldn't answer all his critics all over the world. So that's what gave him the idea for intolerance. Think as I think or be damned throughout the ages. Yes. And he started with Babylon. He came up to the crucifixion, then to the eve of St. Bartholomew in French history, and up to the modern uh, period, uh, the battle that was going on then between capital and labor. And when this film, Intolerance, was shown in Russia, Lenin saw it and thought this man must be uh, a Marxist. <laughs> and he invited him to come to Russia and head the propaganda department. 